reality is, as we go into more freedom of worship, there's more questions for us to be honest about. And the more honest we are about questions, the more room there is to be free to worship. And uh, this morning we're looking at a question of, is Jesus the only way? And I want, to, I want you to know up front that this, this is not an argument. We're not doing some religious argument about theories and, and means and all of this kind of stuff. This comes from a real pastoral place. And for me, this comes from a very personal place. As the, the two topics I get to preach on in the series are topics of questions that I've had. And I'm going to share real honest from my own life in both of these. And for me, I, I always want to share honest, but it's kind of a vulnerable thing because I, I don't mean any of this as like an attack on anyone else. It's just, this is my journey and this is an honest question for me. And uh, I believe in this room, I'm not the only one who has these questions. And so as we set off, uh, let's, let's pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you that we are secure in you and we find safety in you. Jesus, I'm, I'm forever amazed by who you are and by what you've gone through. And I thank you that you're not finished with, with me, you're not finished with this church, that you're inviting us to become who you've already made us to be. And Holy Spirit, have your way in this room. I've got real limited words, but you've got unlimited power. And we ask that like, like rushing water that carves rocks, that you would work in our hearts, that you would speak words that we need to hear, and we'd be moved by you. In your name, amen. So like I said, th this topic for me is very, it, it's personal. It's a question that I've had. And I've had it because I have friends who come from different places. So growing up, my best friend, I told you about him before, his name is Pete. And Pete and I, like, we were like Elijah and Durant. You found one of us, you found the other one. We were everywhere together. We went to each other's homes. You may have had friends like that where just, you were just guaranteed to be in their home if you weren't at your home. And I was at Pete's home. And, and my home, like I told you before, had that, had that white bearded man praying over bread. And Pete's home had Buddha. And there were Buddhas in the home. And then in one corner that was his grandmother's corner, there was a Hindu shrine. And that's what Pete's home was. And we would go in there and watch Saved by the Bell and eat Chinese food and have all sorts of fun. And it was among Buddha and, and this, the, the Hindu shrine. As I got older, uh, went to college, became a pastor in the town that I went to college at, that college uh, campus ministry would invite me back to do some panels. And so I started doing religious panels. And if you've ever been on one of those religious panels, they want you to fight. They, they really want you to argue and not like each other. But something happened where I, we became like really good friends, me and the other panelists. I thought they were fascinating. And so we would meet for coffee beforehand and go out to a movie after. And for us, it was great. It ruined the panel. Because we just we were really interested in what each other were saying, but uh, they became friends. Particularly one one guy, Sage, became um, one of my best friends in the world, and uh, we we would 
we would talk about life, we would talk about God, we became these really good friends, and I remember being at a point where, where he came to a service that I was preaching at, and he told me what he thought, and began explaining his faith, and I told him what I, what I heard, and asked all kinds of questions, and I left thinking, I, I don't, I, like, I, I think Jesus is correct, I, I believe what I believe, but I don't want Sage to be wrong. I don't, I don't want him to be wrong. I don't want Pete to be wrong. This question, is Jesus the, the only way to God? It, it, it felt so exclusive that it made me feel uncomfortable. I felt real like I, I, I'm, I'm no better than Pete and say, they teach me so much. I, I, I love these guys. They, they're, they're moral, they're good, they're loving, they're all of these things. And I wondered if Jesus being the only way could be too limiting. And as I've gotten a little older, I actually believe that Jesus being the only way is very liberating. I, I, I do. I believe him being the way to God is liberating. Jesus being who Jesus is and who he was, I think is, is the most liberating thing. And he, here's why in, in my particular story, the, my friend from the panel, Sage, he, he lived in the Middle East for his growing up years into his mid-twenties. And he lived there during a war. He's Kuwaiti. And his brother was kidnapped and never returned. Uh, Sage lived with this hatred for people who hurt his family. And the only way he could imagine getting through that was by getting back at people. And so for several years, he worked for a news agency with the goal of getting back at people. And he did, he was very good at it. He became a lawyer, and in his country, when you're a lawyer, uh, you're also an executioner. And he was very good at his job. And then he came to the United States to get another degree, because 12 weren't enough. And, and I met him, and we were on these panels together, and we would go to movies, the last showing, no matter what the movie was, whatever the last showing is, is what he wanted to go to. I had no clue why. It was because he couldn't sleep. There was so much guilt, so much built up emotion, so much torment that he just, he couldn't sleep. Any noise woke him and he was just, he was terrified. He would tell me that, that later. And then in his, in his faith, he feared that he wasn't enough. He feared that he could never make up for what he had already done. He feared what would come if he did die. And I remember sitting with him and him saying how incredible it sounded to have a loving God, but it sounded so foreign to him. He just didn't even know what to do with it. And so his life led him to this deep torment and his religion only made that greater. Growing up with my friend Pete, his, his grandma ended up ending her life in, in the garage. We were young kids, we came in. His grandmother was there, she ended her life because she wanted to start her next one because she had already ruined this one. And so just to start the, 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 next, the next life, and again, th this is just from my personal, this is not critique on them, but she was like, I'm just going to start my next one, I've ruined this one. His next 15 years were broken relationships, family and cultural pain, and his religion, as, as we talk, 
he, he loves the universe and, and speaks to the universe and speaks of karma and he has this, this thing. He, he is the most positive, loving person and as we talk about why, he says, I try to only offer positive things out there because that's what I want back. And that's the only way that I think my life can be fixed is if I offer enough positive out that maybe I can get positive back in. And I love my friend. He's fantastic. But I don't ever want to get back what I put out there. I don't. I know me. I know my heart. And I even lie about the goodness of that. (laughs) What I put out there, I need grace to come back. My friend is a much better man than me, but I still imagine I cannot ever put out enough good to get enough good back. And I realized that my mindset was really limited growing up. I thought religion meant afterlife, and that was it. And I had way too small of an understanding of God's power, and way too small of an understanding of our need now for God to move. Not just when I'm dead, but like now, today, in this world today, in our news this week, in our lives right now, in my friends' lives this week. One of the things that I know is true that is in the middle of chaos, clarity is needed. Options aren't what you want when life is chaotic. Options aren't what you want when life is hard and you're drowning and you're suffocating, you just, you just need clarity. You just need to know where to reach. And this is where I found Jesus. <clears throat> We're gonna look at a couple passages. I wanna start in, in Deuteronomy. Jesus isn't quite there yet. I mean, he is, but we don't know it. Um, but this passage is written right after the nation of Israel leaves Egypt. We've talked about this a lot. We've talked about what life was like when an entire nation left another nation, when an entire workforce left. But these Israelites, they knew how to be slaves. And that's about all they knew. They knew what it was like to be told what to do, how to work hard, how to do exactly what they said. And then came what we know of as the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. It says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Here, many of us in this country imagine we have millions of options for everything. You, you want to go get lunch and you don't want to drive past a mile, you've got 25 restaurants, right? We think we've got options on absolutely everything. So this, these Ten Commandments feel amazingly restricting, right? Because you're telling me I can only have one? What? But it's not written to us. It is written to us now, but we are not the original audience of this, the audience of this only knew to be slaves and all of a sudden they're invited into freedom and they don't know how to be free. They have no clue how to be free. For generations, they've been slaves. They've been told what to think, what to do, where to go, all of this. All of a sudden they're ushered into freedom and they need some rules to live by. And God says, hey, 
I spoke to you face to face, like human to human. Like the Pharaoh spoke down to the Israelites. And face to face, God speaks to them. Not generations before, to this very generation. He comes into that time, into that place, and speaks to them. And he says, you will have no other gods before me. Because I'm the one who led you to freedom. You don't need any other gods in presence or proximity to me. This is a command, yes. You will have no other gods. But it is also permission. You don't need any other gods. It's also, not only is it a command, it's also a reminder, you don't need backups here. You don't go here for worship for your crops and here for worship of your family and here for worship of the weather. No, you just come to me. And for anything that you need, you come to me. If you're without bread, come to me. If you're without protection, come to me. If you're without an heir, come to me. If you need to know that you are assured in love, come to me. That's what this is. I am the Lord your God. I have already proven that. You're not in Egypt any longer. Now don't bring any other gods in here because you don't need them. If we see this correctly, we see that this is not a limiting statement. This is a freeing statement. You don't have to make a choice of one of 10,000. You get to know I'm the one who led you before and I will be the one who leads you tomorrow. So... You don't have to bring anyone else. I'm the God who's right before you. <clears throat> then we get to the New Testament. We get to Jesus. And in Matthew 1, we know, we are told that Jesus is Emmanuel, right? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Of all the names he could be. He takes the name Emmanuel. And then in Matthew 2, we find out that he is born into Bethlehem. I know that we've talked about this before, but Bethlehem is a place known for its sorrow, known for its loss, known for its pain. It's where Rachel weeps. It's, it's, it's the place where people say, hey, I am full of bitterness and sorrow because my life has fallen apart. And into that broken place comes Emmanuel into that place filled with pain and sorrow that you know when you go to certain places, you can just feel it in the air that there's something that has happened there, right? You go to certain cities and you're like, oh, this is thick with something. And then you find the story of that city and you're like, oh, I get it now. I remember the first time I went to Birmingham and, and we went to, to, to the church, the museum, to the square, to the park there, and you could feel, you could feel the stories in that place. I remember this, this man walked our family uh, through the park and he pointed out this, this tree by, by the church that had been bombed. And this tree has this really weird like growth that happens where all of a sudden it's as if different trunks come off the trunk. It's not just like branches. And he said, and I don't, I don't know, I didn't research it. I just trust this man. I don't even know his name. But he said, after that bombing, there was a trunk that formed for each one of these little girls. And when you look, you can see that all of these trees came to represent, and whether that happened that day or not, what that represents for that community is that these girls are still alive. That the memory of them is still alive. That this, this pain is not gone. It is not redeemed yet. And sometimes we go to a place that feels like that, right? 
Louisville feels like that. I don't know if you're from here, you don't know. Sometimes we don't know the stink of our own home. Like Louisville feels like that. You're from somewhere else and you come in, you're like, this is a little weird. There's something a little different here. God isn't done redeeming us yet. Bethlehem had a stink to it. It was filled with sorrow. It was filled with a hopelessness. It was a place you return to when your dreams are are dashed. When things have fallen apart, you come back to Bethlehem. And it is at that place that Emmanuel comes. It's in the very place of our sorrow that we get God with us. That matters to me. It wasn't in the palace that he arrived. It wasn't at the university that he arrived. It was at the place of sorrow and pain. He's like, yes, this is where I am, and I am with you. That's what I'm known for. He goes on in his ministry. In John... John 14, you know these words. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that, I've, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you will also, uh, you may be also. And you know to where I am going. Thomas, who gets a bad rap all the time, says, Lord, we do not want know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. We know this, it's so familiar that I think we forget its meaning. I think we forget how rich this is. I, I remember when, when Nikki and I were, were dating, um, I... It was summertime, and I was at my parents' house, and at the time, they were living just north of Minneapolis, and she came to visit. Her and a friend came. We, I don't know what we did all day, but they left after, at the end of the day, and they were driving back to Wisconsin, which if you look at a map, that is east. And, and I said, okay, go on 94 east. That's, you'll hit your town. If you get on 94, you will run directly into where you live. She was like, awesome, I got this. And they drive down 252, and they get to 94, and east leads to Milwaukee, and west leads to St. Cloud. And St. Cloud is about an hour away, and Milwaukee is like six hours away. And an hour sounds better, so she went west (laughs) until she saw a sign for Fargo. (laughs) Thankfully, she didn't go all the way to Fargo. But she saw a sign for Fargo and was like, maybe, just maybe I went the wrong way. Life's that tricky. It is so easy to be like, that's more familiar, and find ourselves going the wrong way. It's so easy to be like, that is closer. I can imagine being there and go the wrong way. It's that easy. And Jesus says, I'm the way. I am the path leading where you want to go. You want to go somewhere. I, I'm, I'm the way that you get there. 
I'm the truth. Now, truth to me is always this like factual thing, like math facts. There is a right one and a wrong one. There's a bigger truth that he is talking about here in the original context. He is talking about it's less factual. It's more quality and dependability. I am what you are looking for. I do not let you down. I will not fail you. I'm reliable. I am what you want. I am the truth. I, I do not change. Yeah. And the life, this desire that we have to be truly alive, he is the way to that. It's as if Jesus says, I am the dependable, trustworthy way to the full life that you've always desired. Thomas asked the question, how how do we get there? We don't even know where we're going. And Jesus says, well, me. Let me make this easy for you. I'm right in front of you. Let me make this plain for you. I am with you. In your sorrow, I am with you. In your questions, I am with you. I am right here. And I am exactly what you have been looking for, and I do not let you down. See, he met us in the desert when we didn't know how to be free. He met us in our sorrow, and he met us in our questions. And he met us at the cross. Now, I have this sanitized version of the cross that I, I don't know where I picked it up, but I held tightly to it because it was much easier to stomach. It was a Swedish-looking Jesus who still, like, he looked tired. That's it. He was breathing his last, but he just, he just looked tired. And I've often left that image captive on Good Friday. And I've let Jesus on the cross stay there. And then re-pick it up the next Good Friday. But I lose the power of my faith when I do that. We lose the power of our faith when we just water down what Jesus went through and sanitize the depictions. There's this art that, it's, it's not new, it's from 1975. It's called The Tortured Christ. You may have seen this. Uh, you can pull it up on your phone if you want. We live with our phones out anyway. I didn't put it up because there's sometimes kids in the room and but this piece, of, this piece of art called The Tortured Christ, 1975, in, in Brazil. This artist made this. I was reading about it this week, and I was reading some comments to articles on it. And one of the comments was, did Jesus really have an afro? Because of this depiction, he has an afro. And I don't think he really had an afro. And so there's nothing that I can learn from this. Another comment was, well, I've really studied Roman crucifixion, and this is not what someone would look like as they went through Roman crucifixion. So all the agony and suffering shown on, on this Jesus, it's inaccurate. So I can't learn from this. And I was brokenhearted because I probably was one of those people before. What this, was, what this was, was the artist had been tortured. And the only comfort that the artist felt was the comfort of knowing that Jesus knew the pain that he went through. And he took what he knew of the cross and he took what he knew of suffering and put it into a piece of art that was alive for him. And if you pull it up on your phone, it speaks to me of the agony and pain that Jesus went through. And like, oh, you even meet us there. You even meet us in our suffering. You even meet us in this agony, this crucifixion, I don't know that we 
we realize all that it is, and we talk about it on Good Friday, and we talk about it on Easter, but we're a week away. We need to talk about it. Fleming Rutledge writes, the crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. The Romans made a habit of saying, you're subhuman, and let me prove it by putting you on a cross. Let me make a spectacle of you to say that you don't belong here. Your voice doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. None of this matters. And I think that this is a living word. I think this is Emmanuel with us today. There are a lot of people who feel like culture or, or politics or nations are saying that they do not matter, that they're less than. And Jesus is Emmanuel. And he knows that pain. He's Emmanuel, God with us. I read about these, these uh, Christians in Nazi Germany who had been hiding Jewish people. And they got caught. They got brought to a concentration camp. And every Friday, uh, the, the custom was every single person would be stripped naked and be brought through a medical examination. And you could never hide yourself. You just had to stand with your arms to your side as the entire line of people were brought forward. And week by week, you looked sicker and sicker as you didn't have enough food and all of this. And one sister whispered to another sister. And Jesus was hung naked on the cross. And he knew that shame. And that sister who was dying all of a sudden worked courage up and felt courage that he knew the shame of that nakedness, of that public spectacle. He knew that shame. He knew the pain of abandonment. Peter, who he loved, who he was later reconciled to, Peter said, I don't even know who that is. If you've ever felt abandonment, he is God with us. He had unjust scourging this crown on his head, like he was, he was just beaten and tortured. But this power of righteousness is on our behalf. He went through that on our behalf so that this scourged and crucified Jesus could be like the, the perfectly fit key to unlock the chains of our sin of this evil, of the oppression, of the hatred that held us in bondage. You see, a, a, a perfectly fit man couldn't do that, but Emmanuel, God with us in, in the flesh, mangled and tortured and scourged and crucified, fit perfectly within those locks to break every chain. Yeah. And none of it holds. For those of us who are beaten down, he's the victorious Christ. For those who live as if righteousness is within our grasp, he is the great corrector. And he's the one who, who removes the blinders from our eyes so that we can see ourselves correctly and, and finally see him. He's the one who took my place. But he didn't end there. Because the power that raised him from the dead is within all who believe. He met us as Emmanuel and now leads us as king. As I think of my friends 
as I think of the people in my life who I once wished any road that they took would lead to God, I now think the only way that I, I want you to know this victory. Your, your pain that you have, I want you to know this healing. The brokenness that you experience, I want you to know this, this reconciliation, this, this resurrection, this new life. I want you to know that it's, it's Jesus. That he's the source of this. For my friends, and my friends in here testing waters, Jesus being the way isn't a lim- limiting thing, it's, it's liberating. It isn't restricting, it's refreshing. My guilt needed atonement. My bondage needed some freeing. And my Jesus met me. It made me new. And that's our story. As individuals, that's our story. As a collection, that is our story. As a people being made new, being made new, being made new. And new freedom and new life is pouring into us. Some of us may have some chains wrapped around us pretty tight. I don't know what they are. But some of us may. Some of us may have asked God to forgive us of our sin, but not to loose us of other things, of evil done to us, or ways that we've been seen inhuman. Some of us may have asked him to loose us of of the evil done to us, but not of our own sin. Some of us may have seen many other people as oppressors, but never seen our own role in it. Whatever that is, I don't want you to leave here bound. And there's people who would love to pray with you. There's going to be people by the doors who, who will pray with you in a moment if, if you desire. But there's no reason to leave here without the security of knowing that Jesus is exactly who he has always said he, he would be. That he's the only one that we need. That he's Emmanuel with us. That he's the hope that we've looked for. And so in, in, in a moment, if you'd like prayer, go ahead and go to one of those corners. Uh, our wonderful worship team's gonna come up and lead us in one more song. And, and we have uh, communion available as well. There's a table back here, there's a table here, and a, a table over, over there. And I wanna invite you to take communion with some people. You can go up as, as a section, as a family, however, however you want to do this. But take, take communion with some folks as l- let this, this we all thing live into us a little bit. This we're free to be in community with one another. We're free to be in this life with one another that Jesus is the one who has brought us together. As I close, I want to read you some of his words that give me great comfort. He said, In Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
Let's pray together here. Jesus, so often, so often I've missed you. I've made you common. And then I think of your words to Peter where, where you said in, in Acts, don't, don't say anything that I made is common. And how that talks about us made in your image. That when we're filled with your life, when we're filled with your Holy Spirit, that we are not even common. And yet, so often I've, I've made you that. I know that there is the chains around folks in here where we feel less for one reason or another where our sin goes unconfessed because we can't imagine you're big enough to handle it we've been beat down pushed towards shame I pray that you would heal these things that you would make us whole for some whole again and for some whole for the first time. God, please heal. Thank you that your, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And invite us to live into that. In your name.